This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So back in December, we covered in the magazine a story about how Warby Parker, often credited with creating the direct-to-consumer craze, was thinking about becoming the Warby Parker of contacts. I feel like, Jason, there's a lot going on in this industry. Our next guest is also looking to expand uh, their company uh, and their reach when it comes to the selling of contacts. In fact, they just did a deal late last year. John Graham is CEO at 1-800-CONTACTS. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. Uh, It is interesting. I do feel like... You know, we've seen a lot going on uh, in this space. Tell us a little bit about the deal you did and what the, what's the goal here in terms of kind of becoming larger. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. And and so when in our context, we have been around 25 years. It's our 25th year. Yeah. Um, and we are the largest seller of contacts in the country. And traditionally, the way that we have fulfilled contacts is the people have their prescription that they get from whatever eye doctor they visit, and then we fulfill that, kind of like a pharmacy for, uh, for contacts. And the, in the last couple of years, we have started to lean more into the he- telehealth solutions that are out there so that people, rather than going to the doctor, the doctor can come through them, to them through technology. And so we have a, a product that we call Express Exam, where someone can just go online, do an exam, and be able to buy their contacts. And the acquisition that we made late, late, late last year is a company called Six Over Six, um, Six over six means 2020 outside of the U.S., six meters. Um, And so the idea is to continue to advance that telemedicine solution. They have a technology that will allow you to actually do an eye exam with just your iPhone uh, or just your smartphone. And so, John, you know, in some ways you were direct-to-consumer before direct-to-consumer was cool or people even knew that term. Help us understand where we are in in that regard, how far it's advanced, because what you're talking about, and and I – believe what we've all been talking about as it relates to the vision business especially is this notion that you really can do a lot of things that maybe didn't seem possible a while ago it sounds like that is yeah that's what you're a, that's a very observant of you because we that's why we're named after a phone number right that we came we were found yeah. just a few years before the internet even got going so even though we own contacts.com 1-800-contacts.com many different urls we've always kept the brand 1-800-contacts because the recall that consumers have for that brand and so we've gone through the entire shift from phone to the web and now we're going from this shift from the web back to the phone as everything's back on the phone again um so we've kind of seen the this, this whole thing come full right. circle, right? And the technology that people carry around in their pockets is more than uh, than you had an optometrist's office in the past or that you had on the Apollo 13 or whatever. And so this technology is really creating disruptive opportunities in business. I do think, you know, healthcare is, is certainly one of the industries that we talk about, John. Increasingly, that has yet to be disrupted. And telemedicine mm. is certainly a big step in that direction. How complicated, though, is it with contacts? I think folks say that you really, you know, they're a little concerned about maybe getting the wrong prescription or things going wrong. And you're talking about your eyes where things can be you know pretty serious so tell us a little bit about the any of the pitfalls that you guys have found in kind of going through this process yeah, I think that's a fair question that uh, the, and and our our industry is this funny intersection between healthcare and consumer right there's a lot of consumerism because most of it is self-paid and for the most part it is a pretty straightforward process of getting getting your eyes checked and, and getting you into contacts or glasses but they are a medical device and so you want to be careful uh, that you're wearing the right contacts and so there's still a doctor 
involved. It's really, it isn't taking the doctor out of healthcare. It's just changing the location of the doctor. So instead of the, you going to the doctor, the doctor comes to you uh, through technology. And so uh, for most of our customers, our, our, our customers tend to be people that have been in contacts for 10 years, 15 years, same, same contact, same prescription, right. and they just want to renew that. And so it, it just simplifies that and, the majority, and expands access. The majority of your customers are The that, majority right? of our contacts, yeah. So this is, at this point, the telemedicine is much more about extending someone's prescription and someone's wearing experience than bringing someone into the mm-hmm. category, right? For that 13-year-old just getting into contacts, that's really not what this is targeted at at this point. And so how much do you worry about a Warby or, or others getting into this and uh, in, encroaching on your market? Well, you know, we've always looked at our primary struggle is to move people from a, a traditional experience into a 21st century experience, to create disruption, to create uh, innovation. And so for the most part, I think of my, my primary competition as brick and mortar, as independent optometrists, and uh, not just gaining share of other online players. And so having more people disrupting and innovating in vision care is actually a really good thing, I think. It's, it's an industry that's been very slow to change, and, and having a little bit of uh, innovation in the space is not a bad thing from our perspective. Just quickly, got about 20 seconds. What kind of growth have you guys seen in the last year or so? The last year has been really good for us, both uh, overall growth in our contact lenses, but growth in these express exams. Uh, and then it's doing really well for our bottom line as double well. Double digit growth? Te- yeah, teen, double digit. High teens? Uh-huh. Or? No, we're in we're in double digits, which in an industry is only going three or 4%. You know, we're growing probably three or four times what the industry is. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. John Graham sticking around with the CEO of 1-800-CONTACTS here in New York City with us. And John, I got to ask you, you know, we, we sort of ended our last piece of the conversation talking about direct-to-consumer, but talk to me, talk to us about the consumer's overall willingness to engage on an app, on a phone, because you've really seen the evolution of this mm-hmm. in many ways. Is this sort of where we're going? Because I think about my own behavior, and I'm an old guy, and yet I'm very comfortable doing lots of stuff on my phone or online and with all these direct-to-consumer brands. I, th- I think that's that's right. And, and- you know, people like you and I, we've been through enough to see how many times we've said, well, I would never. Yes. And then suddenly it happens, right? I remember the first time uh, buying shoes from Zappos and thinking, but you got to try them on, right? And the, the first time I used Uber and thinking, I'm going to get in someone, some, some stranger's car. And so all these things go from disbelief to belief to just the norm. And I think that's what you see happening, right? For the people that are starting to use this, they think, well, why did I ever do that the old way? Right. What's the fu- what's the future? I think about you know companies you know trying to debate public versus private markets, staying private versus going public. What's the future for you guys? Just got about forty five seconds. So we have been uh, private equity owned uh, four different times now, or three different times, but we've been sold three different times in the last five or ten years. And uh, I think private has been really good for us. Yeah. But public makes sense as well. I think at each five year period or whatever, you relook at what the right ownership is, and and you do what's right for the business and right for the customers. More deals coming, you think? Uh, well, we're four years into a private equity hold, so I would I would think so at yeah. some point, not too too yeah. long from now. Yeah. Do you wear contacts? I don't. I wear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough that I wear glasses to read, yeah. but I've never worn contacts. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same. I'm the same. I don't wear contacts, but I've gotten to the point where I need glasses for distance. I have not gotten into the. We're uh, we're a business that's about seventy percent women, uh, because and and I am sort of the classic male in our business, where I even though. I don't wear contacts. I've tried to, but I can't give them my eye. Yeah. I love it. John Graham, thank you so much. Fun to get some time with you. He's CEO at 1-800-CONTACTS, based in Utah, in our New York studio.
All right, so one of your must-reads when you pick up this current edition of Bloomberg Business Week is all about Forever 21, uh, locked in a high-stakes stare-down with creditors. That's the headline that's on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's available on the Terminal and Bloomberg.com as well as in the magazine. Let's hear more about Forever 21 from Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Susan Burfield, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. She co-wrote this story, the lead byline. She joins us on the phone from New York. Susan, I want to start with you. Remind us who Forever 21 is. Sure. So Forever 21 um, is really one of the first American fast fashion companies uh, started in Los Angeles by the Changs um, and spread all around the world, selling um, super cheap uh, fashion uh, to mostly teenagers. And the Chings are a, a, a South Korean uh, couple uh, that are a little bit of an enigma, Susan. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the Chings um, moved to Los Angeles from South Korea, as you said. Um, they started this company, um, and they have remained a private company, very secretive. Uh, the family itself owns 99% of the company. And the other 1% is owned by another couple, um, also Korean-American, who um, are close friends with them and um, have been involved in the company since 2000. So it's, um, it's a hard company to uh, understand from the outside. Um, we you know, were able to talk to a lot of um, former employees and executives, people who had been in the industry with them. But... You know, just to point out how secretive they are, you know, none of them could speak on the record uh, with us. They were concerned in part about their relationship with the change. And also many of them had been forced to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. Now, the whole reason that Forever 21 is noteworthy and newsworthy, Susan, is uh, the fact that it went bankrupt in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. it also speaks to the precarious business model here where, you know, they're in malls for the most part around the world. They have huge footprints in malls, and for malls, that's a big thing because this is a, one of the reasons that you know kids come hang out at malls still. Uh, and yet, as the company's gone bankrupt, it's also put uh, some tension on a the Changs and and b the creditors to make sure that the business might actually end up in a position that it can, you know, have a chance at success. Where where does everything stand currently now that we're on the other side of the holidays? Yeah, so, well, the holidays were not good for Forever 21. Um, you know, they, as you said, they um, filed for bankruptcy in the fall. They've been closing stores um, in the U.S. and around the world. You know, they, they've just pulled out almost entirely from uh, Asia, from Latin America. Uh, they had, as you said, you know, great real estate, expensive real estate, really big stores, and uh, the concern among the mall owners, you know, is that Forever 21 is, you know, obviously not the only big store that's been closing, but it's become, you know, exceedingly important to mall owners for that exact reason. Okay. So they don't want Forever 21. No one wants Forever 21 to, to go out of business altogether. So uh, they've been negotiating um, in part 
to lower rents, you know, to allow the company to survive longer. Um, and then also we reported that there were some early talks about the landlords uh, even taking a stake in the company itself. I have to say, it's a great retail story, business story, but I have to say, Susan, I love kind of the culture that you get into at the company. You talk about uh, some executives who worked with Mr. Chang for years don't recall him ever stopping by their office or sending in an email. Mrs. Chang's section of the building was off limits to anyone who didn't report to her. Former exec saying she wouldn't even let visiting bankers walk down the hallways. One recalls a procurement meeting at which someone took a photo of any supplier who spoke up. This was a strange world. It was. It was a very. It was a very strange world. You know, it was for all of its kind of international expansion. It was still very closed. You know, and even even at the height um, when it was operating in five continents, most everything, uh, all the decisions were made in the Los Angeles headquarters and made by very few people. You know, and what we what we determined is really part of their problem was that you know they expanded so quickly, um, and they really didn't have the managerial expertise to manage that. And it seems like the Changs didn't trust other people to do it for them. So I'll go, I'll go, uh, I'll take issue with one word there, which is expertise, um, because yeah, it doesn't seem like there was much of that going around. One of my favorite details that you guys had here was like the amount of inventory that was stacking up in uh, places mm-hmm. where that inventory was basically unnecessary. What What are some examples along those lines that you guys got in your reporting? Yeah, so, you know, what we found is that, um, you know, the Changs had success early on, um, and then they expanded, and they never changed the way that they operated. So even though they could, they had available to them, you know, information about sales, but they didn't seem to really uh, take, take, it, <laughs> um, take it and use it. So, Make informed you know, decisions, suggesting, yeah. Yeah, they, they, you know, they ordered... Um, for every store in the world, you know, at the same time, the same kind of products, clearly when you're operating, you know, different climates, different seasons, different tastes, different cultural norms, that's not going to work. So they ended up with, you know, clothes that they couldn't sell. We heard that stores kind of on their own were sending inventory, you know, from one place to another. You know, sometimes they had to stack boxes in the dressing rooms because, they received too much, then they would send it back to the distribution center. Um, there just didn't seem to be a great operational system in place. And, you know, what we also kind of determined is that that has made it hard for them to find, um, you know, potential investors because no one's quite sure really what they've got there. Right. Right. Well, it's a terrific story. We really appreciate uh, the good reporting. You spending some time with us this afternoon. Susan Burfield, Projects and Investigations reporter what? for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us on the phone from New York City. It's also just a case, and I know Susan puts this in the story, right? Fast fashion right. is going out of fashion Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Joel. And, that, and that's the big reckoning, right? Yeah. It, it, there's multiple reckonings here. It's the mall. It's the business model. It's yeah. it's the fact that this thing that you know came around 10 years ago is now also feeling like it's on, the, on its way out. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I mean, we look around even New York City and we see these fast fashion houses I mean one downstairs from us you know H&M was in our building and now closed and you you know go up and down the main shopping thoroughfares you just don't see quite as many of them great story check it out it's in the magazine it's on the Bloomberg terminal and it's at Bloomberg.com you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly 
on Bloomberg Radio. Davos, it's happening. The World Heard Economic Forum really annual snowy. meeting in Davos, Switzerland. All the private jets were appointed there. 119 billionaires Ironically, in attendance. don't you think I with know, the theme really being is. climate change? But I was reading something over the weekend about how, you know, there's like a green fuel or some green option that the private jets are using, which I was like, really? The cooking fuel, maybe, yeah. perhaps? Ex- Vegetable Who oil? Knows? I don't knows? know. All right, um, so they're all anyway. there, thinkers, academics, activists, celebrities, and more. Uh, also there is BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. He's talking He's about- He's all of the above. <laughs> he, is. he really is, yeah. actually. Well done. Thinker. <laughs> Executive. Celebrity. Celebrity. I guess so. At least to some. All right. So he's talking about climate change. He's talking specifically, Jason, about the role and responsibilities of companies to help deal with that issue. We talk about climate change all the time. It feels like, though, now that it's also seen as an investment risk, it's caught the world's attention. So let's listen to Larry Fink from Davos. He spoke with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite about the responsibility of it. This year, it was um, a confluence of many different inputs that I had from our clients. Um, clients worldwide have been asking me repeatedly more and more and more about how should they frame a portfolio with climate change considerations. And it was very clear to me that this is becoming a, a, a dominant theme in, with more and more of our investors. We should not avoid the conversation about climate change because climate change is now becoming an investment risk. And no differently as investors focus on yield curve or whatever forms of risk we have, it was very clear to me now we need to now bring forward better risk tools to navigate risk. And this is a component of the letter was asking more more companies to be more self-reporting on things like SASB and TCFD. Um, So we have better clarity and understanding how each company is navigating these issues. The key that we need to do is try to find ways of of mitigating those risks while we are dependent on carbon, carbon recapture. There are many things we need to be doing. But my greatest concern is not that we as investors and we the capital markets are not going to find a lot of capital to invest in these projects. My biggest fear is the dependability and the dependency we have on governments. Because I don't, I don't, I don't see governments are, are working towards these long-term objectives. Climate change is not going to be fixed by a central bank. And it's going to be fixed by a combination of public and private. And that is Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO, founder, co-founder of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, speaking in Davos to John McElthwaite. I think this is really important. And I, and I do find it fascinating that now that there are financial implications to all of this, right, companies are going to be impacted. They already are, whether you're an insurance company, whether you're a builder, um, you know, you're impacted by climate change potentially. And so this has kind of awakened the financial world, uh, if you will. But, you know, what's interesting is Fink went on to say, Jason, that um, climate change will be a disruptive force that could have social implications. And I do think about those households that get caught. They're often in those uh, lower-lying areas, right, in terms of land and development. And I know communities are starting to work on that to actually buy up those homes at market price to get people moved out of there because there's a cost to the municipalities. But you think about those people who are exposed, you know, they're not going to be able to maybe afford the rising insurance costs or the loss of a home. And so I feel like those greater gaps and inequalities that we already 
already see in society can be exacerbated. Well, and it also, to me, raises the question, and, and I believe uh, Fink talked about this a little bit too, of whose responsibility is it? You right. know, I mean, Everybody's responsible, is, actually. It is, but is there more responsibility that should be placed on massive shareholders right. in the case of BlackRock? And, you know, we talked about this with Annie Moss's cover story about the big three, right? Well, and think about, right, the amount of money that they hold in those index funds. Uh, and some, you know, when it comes to certain stocks, it's like 20, almost 30 percent. So they can really be a force for change for good if, if they, they decide want to, be. to be. Well, it's interesting because remember we talked about BlackRock specifically talking about incorporating sustainability into its investment processes, but it was for their actively, their active funds. right, and they've got about $5 trillion in their passive funds. Right. So it's kind of like, yeah. yeah, you're getting there. It's like, okay, okay. Yeah, you're, you're going in the right direction. But listen, it, it, it is not something that anybody can do lightly or quickly. And it probably is a situation where were they to really go so far as to say, all right, even our passive holdings, we've got to do that. You would probably see a massive rebalancing as it were absolutely to use the of the of the industry of what they hold because a lot of companies out there wouldn't pass muster correct with a lot of these esg uh characteristics we've got a good uh, story in the magazine about this this week and meanwhile tiktok because the clock continues and the planet TikTok's gets like the dancing thing? no it's oh. the i'm meaning i'm going to be serious oh, the planet's sorry. getting warmer and warmer and i don't know you know how much we have to see whether it's the fires in australia the fires in california the floods that we are seeing um you know look at the the world's oceans getting warmer i mean i don't know what more evidence we need i'm sorry i'm on my soapbox but, I just wanted to talk about TikTok videos. But, I know. Okay, but uh, now the planet's serious, being destroyed. I'm the serious one. and you Yeah, know, I mean, seriously. Making like, jokes all the way. Yeah, just all the way. Just Jokey McJokerson over here. Go to Bloomberg.com, folks. Check out, because there's lots of great interviews from Davos, including the complete interview. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. D.R. Barton, Jr., Chief Technical Strategist for MoneyMorning.com, based in Delaware, back with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Welcome back. Well, Carol and Jason, thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. So when you look at this market environment, I don't know, what does it say to you about visibility and kind of where we might be going from here? You know, the theme that keeps coming back for me, Carol, is resilience. I mean, we get bad news and the market pops. We get it drops down just for a short time and then it and then it pops back regardless of what it's been the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, th this morning we, we all got the news. I was actually watching on the monitors last night when the news of the uh, the coronavirus being more widespread right. than originally thought. Um, and and the, the Dow dropped 100 points in a matter of seconds on that news. And if uh, people with some good market memory might remember all the way back to SARS and what that did to the markets. But remember the Ebola 
uh, problems and, and the real issues. When that second Ebola case hit the U.S. in uh, October of 2014, the markets were down about 6% in two days. So wow. this is a real uh, a real issue because it's a lot of resources that people would have to put toward making sure we're already doing it. We're already doing extra screens at airports and mm -hmm. things just already. I remember so, rethinking doing some traveling at that time and being nervous about it because of it you yeah. know, and, and potentially holding back. I had, half so a, I had half a plane to myself when I went over to Singapore in, in, uh, in just after, right at the tail end of the SARS, SARS scare. And I really, I paid 700 bucks for a round trip ticket to Singapore to see a, a business colleague. And it was like a ghost town on that yeah. plane. And so at what point do you start to worry? So we have a U.S. case, uh, a confirmed U.S. case, according to the CDC. At what point does this really start to impact the markets in the magnitude that you just described that we had with SARS? Yeah, well, well Ebola, uh, and, and, Ebola and Ebola more re recently in, 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 in our memory was it was a very contagious disease. And, you know, up until yesterday, we didn't think uh, the medical officials in China didn't think it was be, it was human to human transmitted, only animal to human. And then they got that one case that made 14 people sick in a in a hospital. Um, so I think it's when we would see a spread, when we would see someone else infect a second party in the U.S., not a second case coming in. That's when people will start going, hmm, this is really something to pay attention to. But I think the flipping back, Jason. What I'm seeing is with that happening, our markets just really aren't responding that badly. I mean, if you look at the ETF, the China ETF, the FXI, the large cap ETF, it's down four and a half percent today. So there's some real concern about handling of that. And there is some history that they did not disclose the SARS, the breadth of the right. SARS uh, issue until too much too late. Well, the it, last ma time it makes sense to see the bigger impact over in Asia, right? Because sure. they're closest to what's happening. Um, but I will say, and we watched it as the news broke and the headline broke of the case, you know, here in the United States, markets took a leg down they and we're, a, you know, we're off our lows, but nonetheless, right. it was sharp and swift and we definitely did take a leg down. So it's certainly a situation that bears watching to see if it becomes more widespread and hopefully it does not. So when you look at some of the other things that guide your investment decisions right now, what's the top two? Yeah, I think the the top two are really big picture. I got to go up to the 30,000 foot view to talk about central bank supportiveness. And that money that's flowing into the banking system is then going to go somewhere where it's treated best. And it's still being treated best right here in the U.S. stock markets. And in the U.S. stock markets at those huge megatech companies that we talk about all the time that are doing double digit revenue growth, the despite being the world's biggest companies. So that flow is going to continue. And I think that everything else is, a, is an interruption in between. And the second thing, Carol, is that I see the support that it's not just a few of the big dogs pulling the sled. When we look at breadth numbers, the, the number of stocks that are participating right. how broad -based in the, the rally up, is. We, how the rally is very broad based. On Friday, we had 35 times more stocks hit a new a 52-week high, then hit a new 52-week low, like 730 to 30 something. So it's a lot of a lot of stocks participating, and that lets me know that there are there are more legs to this to this up move. And so, what then do you worry about the the most longer term? I mean, I just I think about even what we've been dealing with today with impeachment mm -hmm. and obviously North Korea is still hanging mm -hmm. out there. You have the president in Davos and, <laughs> you know, we've got 
talk about climate change. We just did right. a segment, you know, with our expert on that. And I, I do just wonder what what disruption is out there that we're not thinking about. And and I feel like we're talking about it, especially because we didn't see this virus coming. Sure, sure. And I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, on the short term, the things that we might watch are obviously more on the on that uh, on the virus issue. But if something if something were to for a broad market participants, and the traders and investors I talk to, if something were to dis uh, to disturb the phase two China deal, mm. if we had some the Hong Kong protests rear their head again, and US felt like it had to get involved and therefore put some wedge into that process for the phase two deal. Or if China uh, is found not following through on the IP protection that they're supposed to be doing, or the U.S. does something on their side that they're not doing something that they agreed to, I think that's the biggest near-term, that's the biggest near-term worry. There's always profit-taking, and we're due for a little leg down, and if we do, I'm going to rejoice because I'm going to be buying it. But I think for big things, I think those are the things that I'm looking at short-term. Sure, Korea could go off at any moment and shoot another missile right. and then then we would you know have some near short-term disturbance as well dr i just got about 30 seconds sure. left here so somebody who's got some new money to commit to this market mm. where do you put it yeah and i think that's going to be a lot risk-based i mean i think that that if you know one of the stocks that i've been liking and i own and i recommend i think amazon has trailed the other big mega mega right. techs but i think they're going to have a have an up leg and catch, play a little catch up in the first half and if you're a little more risk averse i really like the utilities for early with uh, with this low interest rate environment. I like Southern Company in particular. I think they're doing a great job executing. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Great to catch up with you. Dr. Barton Jr., Chief Technical Strategist for Money, MoneyMorning.com, based down in Delaware, here with us in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.